Grace and peace and welcome to Cokesbury United Methodist Church here in Woodbridge, Virginia. My name is Taylor Mertens and I serve as the pastor here at the church and I'm grateful that you are with us this day to worship the living God in spirit and in truth and to hear what God has to say to us today about who we are and whose we are. Today we're kicking off a sermon series for the month of August on That's Not in the Bible. Uh, we're looking at five different common expressions that are used by Christians that have no biblical warrant. And today we're kicking off with probably the most used of all, everything happens for a reason. Uh, for the next, today and the next four weeks, we're going to be looking again, as I said, at different common ex Christian expressions and thinking about why we perhaps should not be using them anymore. Uh, there are a number of things that are going on in the life of our church. We have uh, live Facebook videos we're putting out every week from uh, worship songs to thoughts, theological thoughts about what it means to be a Christian in the world today to email devotionals to a great score of other things. If you want to know more, you can find out uh, more information about our church on our Facebook page or on our church website. There's an online bulletin for the service. The link for uh, finding it is in the video description. That bulletin will contain our prayers, scripture, hymns, all those sorts of things, all the pertinent information you might need. So feel free to pull that up if it's helpful for you. Uh, but I'm glad that you're here today. We're going to continue to offer online worship for the foreseeable future until we feel like it's completely faithful and safe for us to reopen for in-person worship. And even when we do, we're going to continue to offer worship online so that uh, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, you will still be able to worship with us uh, going forward no matter what. As I said before, today's subject, uh, the expression, the that's not in the Bible that we're going to be looking at is that's, uh, that everything happens for a reason. And because that's the expression today, I was thinking about it a lot and praying about it a lot, and I came across a story this week that I felt was uh, quite pertinent to the subject matter at hand. Uh, there was a pastor from Virginia, not United Methodist, who posted on his Facebook page that he believed the coronavirus was a complete hoax, that nobody was going to be able to stop him from his ministry. So he packed up his pickup truck and he drove all the way down to New Orleans, in his word, uh, to save souls. So he wandered up and down Bourbon Street. He was passing out pamphlets and imploring people to leave their drinks behind, to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. He was there for weeks doing the same thing every day. This was part of his annual pilgrimage to save the children of the devil in Louisiana before he would return back to his church in Virginia. So he got in the truck to make the drive home and he couldn't stifle his coughing. He eventually pulled over at a gas station, and before he could get help, he collapsed onto the asphalt and was rushed to the hospital. And within a few days, he was dead. His favorite expression in his preaching was, everything happens for a reason. It is a very, very problematic sentence uh, for reasons that we will investigate and think about and reflect upon during the service. But it's it's so telling that even in the midst of something so horrible like the coronavirus, for Christians to still, still declare everything happens for a reason because it's not in the Bible. So with thoughts of these things, let's just bow our heads for a moment of silence as we continue to, to bring ourselves before the Lord for worship. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful, wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let us pray. 
Lord, you find us gathered here in this way to hear your word, to call on you, to praise you, to ask for your will to be done. But how should that happen, Lord? You know what sort of people we are. You know what we think, what we believe. You know how we act. And frankly, we know it too. Before you, Lord, we cannot deny it anyway. You know, our hard hearts, our impure thoughts, our disordered desires, our errors, transgressions, so many words and deeds that only make things worse. Who are we to call upon you? Things in our life do not work out without your speaking and working among us. We hold solely to the promise of your grace and mercy that Jesus Christ, your son, has come to bring good news to us, to rescue us, to resurrect us. This is that to which we hold on to, knowing that you can do what we cannot, that you make something of our nothing, you make a way where there is no way, that you will never, ever abandon us, even in our suffering. With that, Lord, each of us will now lift up our own prayers to you, whether silently or loud, our joys and our concerns this day. And as you taught us, Lord, so now we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our scripture reading today comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the 8th chapter, verse 28 and 31 through 39. This is Romans 8, 28, 31 through 39. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Hear now the word of the Lord. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the God, but who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our hymn today is number 77 in the United Methodist Hymnal. Number 77, How Great Thou Art. The words for this hymn are printed in the online bulletin. Uh, I was blessed by Gloria Baltimore coming by this week and joining me over on the other side of the church to play a few hymns to record for future worship services. So join us now as we play and sing the wonderful, wonderful hymn, how great thou art. 
We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Everything happens for a reason. We say something like that to bring comfort to people in the midst of uncertainty or tragedy or difficult circumstances, mostly because we don't know what else to say. It is a remarkably prevalent and common expression among Christian types, and it's not in the Bible. 
Years ago, I received a phone call that a woman in my church was near her final moments of earthly life. She had been suffering from a great number of chronic problems for the better part of two decades, and most of her family was not, you know, they were kind of surprised that she had lived as long as she did. And so we all gathered together, we stood around her bed, we held hands, we prayed together, we sang, and we shared those final moments before she died. A few days later, on the eve of her funeral, her now widower husband fell down the steps right in front of their house after returning home from the wake, and he was rushed immediately to the hospital where I met him. It was clear that he was going to need a few days to recover and to rest, so we delayed his wife's funeral until he was better. Eventually, with bandages wrapped around his head, he sat down in the pews on the day of the funeral for his wife, surrounded by his family, and together we all worshiped the Lord and we gave thanks to God that God had placed her into our lives. After the burial, after the reception, the widower returned home, complaining about how tired he was, and he went to bed. He never woke up again. A husband and a wife, dead, less than a week apart. So when I got the phone call about his death, having only seen him the day before, I rushed over to his house to meet with the family who were all still in town because of the wife's funeral. And one by one, I watched and I listened as every single family member exchanged a version of everything happens for a reason. God just needed another little angel in heaven. God wanted them to be married in heaven just like they were married on earth. This was all part of God's plan. And the more I heard these things, the more my, my blood started to boil inside me. And before I got a chance to blurt out something pastors aren't supposed to say, one of the couple's daughters beat me to it, and she said, for everyone to hear, that's BS. Except when she said it, she didn't use the acronym. She continued, if this was all part of God's plan, then why did God take away my mom and dad so quickly? Why would God do that to me? And that's when the entire room full of people turned to me, the pastor, the so-called expert on God. And all of their eyes said, why don't you take this one, pastor? And so I said, if there is a reason for everything, if God killed both of them on purpose, then God isn't worthy of our worship. And whenever we throw around trite and cliche sentences like, Everything happens for a reason. It puts all of the responsibility of every single little thing entirely and only upon God. It makes God into a monster. God becomes the author of car crashes, of incurable childhood cancers, unending wars, and yet more often than not, everything happens for a reason is our go-to expression when we don't know what else to say. If there are two things that we as human beings just can't stand, they are mystery and silence. It's no wonder, therefore, that when we're faced with a situation that has no explanation at all, we get as far away from the mystery, as far away from silence as we possibly can by saying something we think is helpful. We both want to have an answer for every single question, and we want to be able to get out of uncomfortable moments when we don't know what to say. The problem with all of that is we think we're helping, when actually, we're making things worse. Anyone who claims that everything happens for a reason are those who believe that God wills every single horrific death, every incurable diagnosis, and even something like the coronavirus. They see and imagine God as this great puppeteer in the sky, instituting every possible contingency such that it has to be this way all the time, no matter what. And if that's true, 
than every rape, every murder, every act of child abuse or neglect, every war, every storm, every earthquake, every single one of those things are part of God's plan. So to those who believe that is the case, the response from the daughter whose parents died should suffice. Now in his book, The Doors of the Sea, David Bentley Hart recalls reading an article in the New York Times shortly after the unimaginable tsunami that wrecked South Asia back in 2015. The article was focused on a Sri Lankan father who, in spite of all of his best efforts, which included swimming in the rolling sea with his wife and his mother-in-law on his back, he was unable to save his wife or any of his four children from drowning in the waters. And during the interview, the, the father recounted the names of his children, and then overwhelmed by his grief, he sobbed to the reporter, my wife and children, they must have been thinking, father is here, he will save us. But I wasn't able to. David Hart wonders in his book, if you had the chance to speak to the father in the moment of his deepest pain, what would you say? Hart then argues that only idiots would have approached the father with trite and empty theological expressions like, sir, your children's deaths are all part of God's cosmic plan, or, you know, everything happens for a reason. Most of us, Hart argues, would have the good sense not to talk like that to the Father. And he takes it a step forward. He says, this should tell us something. For if we think it is shamefully foolish and cruel in the moment when another person's sorrow is most real and irresistibly painful, then we should never say them at all. And I would take it even one step further than that. If we mustn't say things like that to a father in grief, then we should never say them about God either. St. Paul wrote to the early church in Rome, we know all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, which for many justifies the desire to say something like, everything happens for a reason. And yet when we take that verse out of context, when we cherry pick it to use as we see fit, we forget that this verse is the beginning of Paul's big crescendo to one of the most important texts in all of Romans, a text we use at almost every single funeral, the text that describes how nothing Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And what we miss when we pull that one verse out of context is that profound and powerful declaration that there are powers and principalities contending against God in this life. That is, death is something that is actively trying to separate us from God, except God wins in the end. The good news of Jesus Christ is that death is God's ancient enemy, God, whom God has defeated in Christ Jesus, who will ultimately be destroyed forever in the new Jerusalem. That is, to put a fine point on it, the whole point of the gospel in the first place. It would then be nothing but ridiculous for God to delight or even ordain the deaths of those whom he loves, because it would run completely counter to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God God does not want bad things to happen to us. But bad things do happen. They happen in this fallen, infallible world we fall, find ourselves in. We all, we all make choices we know we shouldn't. We all avoid doing things we know we should. We contribute in ways both big and small to the tremendous suffering that happens in the world. Easy examples like the way we delight in being able to purchase a banana whenever we want from a grocery store. I mean, that banana requires low-wage work, an absurd amount of fossil fuels, and harmful chemicals to make it all the way to our houses. Two, texting while we drive. 
which distracts us from the kid who's running into the street to grab his basketball, to a great number of other things we have happen every single day. You know, some of the suffering in the world is willed, but not by God. It's willed by us. In our relentless pursuit of whatever we think we deserve, but still, there's a fair amount of suffering in the world that exists not because of us, nor does it exist because of God. Things just happen without explanation. And when those things occur, whether they're willed by human beings or they're random events in creation, we do well to just close our mouths and rest. Rest in the knowledge of the gospel, the good news, that death has been defeated. I mean, does that erase death's sting here and now? Of course not. Death always hurts. But as Christians, we know how the story ends. We know that those we lose in this life will be waiting for us at the supper of the Lamb, surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses who have gone on before us. The for good that God works to achieve is the proclamation that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, that even in our suffering, even in our deaths, God is with us. Look, in my line of work, people show up at the church, call me on the phone, and they're all asking some version of the same question. Why is God doing this to me? The loss of a child, the loss of a job, the loss of health. And for as many times as I've heard questions about God's purposes behind the purposeless moments in life, I've heard from just as many people wondering, what can I say? What can I possibly say to someone in the midst of their suffering? So if you hear nothing else today, hear this. Sometimes the best thing that you can say is absolutely nothing. As hard as it might be to sit with someone else in their pain and in their suffering, just listening and being quiet is often far better than doing anything else, particularly if you try to fill that space and that time with trite and meaningless aphorisms. At the very least, sitting in silence with someone in their grief is the most faithful thing we can ever do. You know, life is hard, and all kinds of things happen without explanation. I know that might not sound very pastoral, but we all know that it's true. Think about it this way. Can you imagine if, after getting a really, really bad diagnosis or losing someone you love or any other number of bad things you can imagine, can you imagine how you would feel if you came to the church one morning came into the sanctuary, knelt down here at the altar, lifted up your concerns to the Lord, and when you did so, you heard a great and booming voice from the heavens declare, I'm doing this to you on purpose. This is all part of my plan. If that's who God is, then God isn't worthy of our worship. Thankfully, that's not who God is. God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having first raised Israel out of Egypt. God is the author of salvation, not the dictator of death. God is the one who would do everything, who literally did everything to make sure that nothing, truly nothing, could ever separate us from his divine love. Our hope, it's not contingent on finding reasons to explain everything that happens. Instead, our hope is built on Jesus Christ, who shows us in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection that God is with us, always. There's nothing we can do about it. For I am convinced, like St. Paul, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, that's the good news. 
It's the gospel. Jesus is the reason that even when things happen, we are not abandoned. Thanks be to God. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of prayer, a time of silence to listen, a time of reflection to speak, a time of purpose to be transformed. What an extraordinary thing that we can pray to you, that we can unburden ourselves before you, we can place our cares, our woes, our joys before you. Prayer can certainly be strange, O Lord, and yet to know that you listen, even to us, is nothing but grace. So we pray today a prayer of joy in prayer, asking that we might become your prayers for one another. And all God's people say, Amen. God has gathered us together, even in this strange way online. God has proclaimed God's word to us, and we respond to what God has said with the giving of ourselves, the giving of our time, the, the giving of our silence in the midst of those who are suffering, the gift of our presence for those who are suffering. But we also respond with the giving of our tithes and our offerings, knowing that they can be and will be used as a blessing here at this church for others, for the world. So I encourage you to give with glad and generous hearts to Cokesbury United Methodist Church. You can give online. The link for doing so is in the video description. You can send a check through the mail to the church, or if you live locally, you can come by the church, drop your offering off. We have a drop slot by the main office doors. But give. Give gladly and generously, knowing that God will use those gifts to bless others. Another way that we like to respond to what God has said is by affirming our faith using something like the Apostles' Creed. The words for it are on the online bulletin, and I encourage you to join me in affirming our faith together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Each week, I've also been thinking about different and other imaginative ways that we can respond to God's word from Sunday to Sunday. And this week, I've been thinking it might be helpful for us to think about covenants and a covenant of prayer that we can make with the Lord. In 1755, John Wesley led the Methodists in what would become known as the covenant prayer. It is, above all things, a prayer of surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And though God does not will suffering... In the covenant prayer, we yield ourselves, our entire beings, to be used by God, even if it leads to suffering. For to suffer for others is to know the mind and the love of God. The covenant prayer has been used by the church since 1755, and we are going to use it today as well. I encourage you, as you're able, to join me in this prayer right now. You can find the words in the online bulletin. And additionally, I urge you to think about what it would look like to offer this prayer to God every single morning for this week. Maybe the first thing you do when you wake up as a way to set your day with intention uh, and with a thought of how theologically it might change the way you act and speak and behave. So let's use this covenant prayer together. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt, 
rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Now go forth with this blessing and benediction. May the God of grace and glory, God of the beginning and the end, the God of life and of death and of resurrection, help you to see, know, and believe that nothing, nothing can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That Jesus is the reason that when everything happens, we know we are not abandoned. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. I look forward to seeing you and joining together next week for the continuation of this series on That's Not in the Bible. Go in peace and be well.